1: Well, here we are in the middle of a second wave of COVID cases. We've got vaccination efforts that are kind of struggling to really get going here. And meanwhile, we've got this exclusive Ipsos polling for Global News that suggests quite a few of us are kind of losing confidence that life might be going back to normal anytime soon. Ipsos CEO Daryl Brooker joins us this morning for a closer look at those numbers. Good morning, Daryl. Good morning, it, This sounds like Canadians are kind of losing confidence. Yeah, well,
2: as time marches on, as we get closer to the summertime, uh, it looks like we're running out of time to, uh, to actually be able to achieve any sort of normalcy by summer. So, uh, you know, we've seen an 11-point drop in, uh, in the, the number of people who said that we will be out of this by the summer, and only half of us currently feel that way.
1: Ooh, and how does that kind of square with the, I mean, we've got more availability of vaccines, you've got, you know, several of them approved here in Canada. What happened to, to see that drop?
2: Well, we had some optimism associated with that. Now we're into the question of uh, the, the speed of distribution. So people are, are you know, acknowledging that uh, we need to get the most vulnerable and the people who are most essential vaccinated first, but they really don't have any sense of when they're going to get a vaccine. And that's ultimately what it comes down to. When do I think I'm going to be vaccinated? And right now, people are kind of all over the map on that, but more likely to think it's going to be earlier rather than later. And they're seeing a mismatch between what they think and what they're being told out of governments and what they're actually seeing happening out there.
1: And how are Canadians feeling about the idea of kind of going back to their workplaces instead of having to work from home?
2: Well the first thing you know when you when we survey people to find out how many people are actually working from home it's 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 about around twenty percent. I mean so a lot of people are already yeah. back at their workplaces and but they're just doing it in a risky way, so they're concerned about that. But among the people uh, who are at home, uh, and we've shown this in previous surveys, they're somewhat divided on the question of you know, not just the question of whether they will be going back, but whether or not they should be going back. So half of the people that we interviewed um, previously said that they actually would prefer to work from home. So this whole, Idea of working from home or going to a workplace or what the office is all going to be about is going to be a, a point of, I would say, a certain amount of debate and confusion over the next bit of time.
1: Okay, let's talk about the big one though. If we're talking about summer, vacation, I know people can go another summer without going anywhere, Daryl. Like, you know, they need a vacation, they want to travel. How are they feeling about that?
2: Yeah, only about uh, 31% of us, so about a third of us are saying right now that they think they'll be traveling internationally in the next, in the next, uh, in the next year. Now, that number goes up a little bit when we start talking about going from province to province. But yeah, until we get the vaccines going at a more accelerated pace and people really start to see progress, you know, we come out of our homes, we stop from being locked down, and most importantly, we see the number of cases start to go down. We're not really thinking of going anywhere.
1: So you said you checked on that province to province. So some provinces were more optimistic than others?
2: Yeah, uh, on our coasts. So Atlantic Canada, they're living in their bubble. They're having a different experience with COVID than the rest of the country. But also British Columbia, uh, people say that they're going to be more likely to do, be doing some traveling. So maybe they have a bit more optimism about the situation in B.C. But still, we're, we're not talking um, a huge degrees of difference between those two places and, uh, and the rest of the country.
1: So when, you, when it came to the optimism and the pessimism, was there also like an age difference when you broke that down?
2: Yeah, the oldest and the youngest. It's the, it's, it's the people who are out there who are working that sort of middle-aged, middle-class group of the population that's being most affected by what's going on in terms of their uh, their work the work situation, right. they're the ones who are not as optimistic as others, maybe because they're experiencing it more directly than some of the other groups, particularly the older population, who an awful lot of them are retired.
1: Yeah. And what's interesting, too, I found about this is that the breakdown of the optimism and pessimism really does um, determine like which province is dealing with it well right now. Like if you've got COVID-19, you're feeling okay about it in the province that you live in, you seem to be more positive and, and optimistic.
2: Well, you know, we always say all, all politics is local. It seems that all disease management is local, too. <laughs> so what, what, what's happening outside of, your, uh, outside of your own house? What's happening inside of your house? What's happening, you know, uh, a, couple of, uh, a couple of kilometers from where you live is what you're most concerned about and what you're watching most closely. So if things aren't going better for you in that place, then they can't, then optimism is not going to grow.
1: Interesting. Well, listen, Daryl, thank you so much.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Cindy.
1: Daryl Bricker, Ipsos Public Affairs CEO. They've done some new polling asking Canadians essentially how confident you feel about things getting back to or on the road to, well, so-called normal, perhaps this summer. And you know what? like. 47% of Canadians they found think that COVID-19 is going to be under control by the summer. That number is actually 11 points lower than when they asked the same question a month before. So I think there was all this optimism, right, about the vaccines. Everybody was feeling good about it. The vaccines are coming. And then the schedule slowed down and we ran into trouble with supply. And now people are kind of feeling that optimism slipping away.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: You know, the next year or two is going to see more hybrid and electric vehicles in the marketplace. It would also help explain why GM Canada says it's reached a tentative agreement with Unifor and they're investing a billion dollars to uh, essentially redo a plant in Ontario into a commercial electric vehicle manufacturing plant. So more and more electric vehicles. Well, if you're in Surrey and you have one or you're thinking about getting one, There is some good news on that as well. Federal government is uh, ponying up some money for a charging network in that city. To talk more about that, we're joined now by Catherine McKenna, the Minister of Infrastructure and Communities. Thank you for being with us this morning. Good morning. So tell me about this charging network. Is this just in the city of Surrey? Uh,
3: It is. It's at 10 different community centres. Um, and I think that's really important because we're. You have to make. I realized this in my previous role as Minister of Environment and Climate Change, and now as Minister of Infrastructure. You need to make irresistible options. So we need to make it easy for folks to charge their vehicles. Um, so the, this will be forty uh, EV charging stations um, at ten community centers, and this is a part part of a network of charging stations that we've been working hard with the government uh, of BC and local communities. Uh, to build charging stations across uh, British Columbia. And I have to give a huge shout-out to British Columbia because it's certainly uh, a leader on climate change, um, and people realize the benefits. They realize it means cleaner air. It means uh, getting around uh, when you you invest in in better transportation, getting around faster and cleaner ways. And so this is all part of how we are helping folks, um, but also building a cleaner economy.
1: So why Surrey then? Was there, did you realize that, okay, there's an area that needs more charging stations?
3: Well, I mean, I think a lot of people, I talked to uh, our great MPs uh, that we have in Surrey. We have Randeep Sarai, Sukh Dollywell, and Ken Hardy, and they are really excited about the future economy, but they also realize that transportation uh, is, uh, it contributes a lot to greenhouse gas emissions, um, that people are interested Um, in playing their part, but part of that is making it easy. And so having um, EV charging stations accessible at places like community centers is really important. And they've been huge allies. And I really have to say that we've got a great team out there who really understand that this is where we've got to go. And uh, I've been to Surrey. Um, I've seen it's a you know a vibrant community growing fast. Um, and as part of that, we need to make sure that we help people get around where I know you might want to talk about public transit. We're certainly supportive yep. uh, of more public <laughs> transit there as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's another big thing that Surrey would like to see is more SkyTrain. Where's the federal government on that? Uh,
3: So we're very supportive of the projects. Um, The province is currently uh, reviewing it, Um, but we have said that public transit is a top priority. So I was with the Prime Minister when he announced our climate plan in December. Um, He kind of said stay tuned um, for uh, permanent public transit funding um, in January. So everyone stay tuned. There will be announcements soon. Um, But public transit is so critical. And I know some people have sort of said, well, why do we really need it? In the pandemic, you know, people aren't, you know, maybe taking it as much. I think we need it more than ever. I think that we need to be making sure that we make these investments. We have to grow our economy and create jobs. And that's exactly what, um, you know, the the Surrey uh, Langley SkyTrain would do. Um, But we also need to be thinking about the long term when we invest um, in, in projects like this. And this is about a cleaner future. Uh, it's about people getting home to their families faster. It's about getting around in cleaner, more affordable ways.
1: Okay, so that announcement's coming up today. While we have you, though, we also have to ask you about Keystone XL. I imagine for the federal government, that was kind of all hands on deck yesterday. What is the federal government doing in response to this idea that the new Biden administration might just pull this, pull the plug on this whole thing?
3: Uh, look the Prime Minister has been clear. he He's spoken with um, uh, incoming President Biden in the past uh, about the project, um, also about what we've been doing on climate change. and uh, and so I mean, I think that you're always going to have, you know issues like this. And I think making the case that this is, that Canada is taking very serious action on climate change, um, and that we have opportunities to work together. And I also look at the other opportunities. So I'm working. Um, uh, we have the Canada Infrastructure Bank that I'm responsible for, and it's looking at transmission lines. And I look at a province like British Columbia. You are already doing um, exporting some of your clean power to the U. S. That is a Huge opportunity for Canada. So there are, you know, there, you know, there's going to be ups and downs in any relationship, and certainly we're always going to make the case uh, for Canada and for Canadian jobs. Um, But I think that that there are huge opportunities. I've worked with many members of this administration in my previous role um, in the context of the Paris Agreement, but more broadly. And uh, I think, you know, there's going to be ways that we can move forward together. And we have to do that. We need to move to the cleaner future. And we need to make sure that there are opportunities for Canadians. And I I heard at the start that you talked about uh, the Unifor uh, GM Canada deal. Um, now that's still there's some hoops still to go through for them, but that's a great opportunity to create uh, electric right. trucks. Like how amazing that that's the future and create good jobs. So I see opportunities for Canada across the board, including in partnership with the U.S.
1: But you, the way you're talking, though, it sounds like you're you know the government knows that this thing isn't going to happen. Then so is Keystone XL a, a done thing? It's not going to happen.
3: Uh, well, the prime minister and uh, you know our folks are are making the case to uh, the administration I mean obviously they've got to make their own decision um, but I think we've been really clear about just making sure they understand everything we've done um, on climate change um, and uh, and the prime minister has been clear about his position on this project um, so you know we're working uh, we're gonna, you know working hard behind the scenes and then as I say also looking at other opportunities
1: all right well thank you very much for your time
3: well, it's been great, thanks. And everyone, go check out those EVs when they're out right there.
1: Okay, that's Catherine McKenna, the Minister of Infrastructure and Communities, federal government making an announcement in Surrey this morning, and that has to do with a new uh, vehicle, electric vehicle charging network in the city of Surrey. But of course, the hot topic today also being what is the federal government going to do about the Keystone XL pipeline when it sounds like the Biden administration, which gets to work tomorrow is probably tomorrow going to pull the permit for that pipeline. And it sounds like a lot of phone calls right now going on behind the scenes.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, today is the last day of the Trump administration, and that means, well, anything could really happen, just like it's been the last four years of the Trump administration. And a reminder, we have special Inauguration Day programming that we will be running tomorrow morning, hosted by Donna Friesen. Starts at 8 a.m. right here on 980 CKNW, so make sure you stay tuned for that. But right now, let's talk about what we can expect today and tomorrow. Joining us is Global Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. How is the Capitol this morning?
4: Well, look, there are 26 hours and 40 minutes until this administration expires and a new administration is sworn in. Uh, The security is tight. The security is increasing. The bulletproof glass is going up in the bowl of the inauguration pit where Joe Biden will stand tomorrow. So things are active. Things are underway, but things are tense.
1: Okay, so today is a day everybody says that, oh, maybe the pardons will
4: come today. What have we heard about that? This is all we know, is that the pardons are likely going to come today simply because, again, there is just you know roughly 24 hours left in President Trump's uh, term, uh, and he is expected to issue possibly upwards of 100 of them. It's unclear who's going to get them. Are we going to see someone like Steve Bannon? Are we going to see people linked to the Trump organization? Are we going to see people who are potentially inside the Trump family receive a pardon? It's a wait-and-see, walk-on-eggshells moment because the impacts could come back uh, negatively for President Trump if he were to say pardon him. Which potentially would mean he's owning up to something.
1: Ooh, interesting. Okay, so what? How do we expect tomorrow to unfold? We know it's not like any other inauguration day, but what do we know at this point?
4: So we know that uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will be in attendance. They will take the oath of office outside. It will be administered as it always is by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Kamala Harris will have hers uh by uh Sonia Sotomayor, uh, one of the associate justices at the Supreme Court. The you know, the national anthem, there will still be people in in attendance. The chairs are still out on the lawn, obviously a far smaller crowd. But when Joe Biden is standing looking out giving his speech along the National Mall, there are 200,000 American flags instead of people and it's to replace the people who can't come because of security threats, who can't come because of the threat of COVID-19. So it is far, far different from what we're usually used to.
1: That's true. But I saw the pictures of the flags that they put up there, and it looks pretty impressive.
4: It's it's beautiful. And it's to try and bring America toge- uh, together at a point where America not only has been torn apart by the crisis uh, with COVID, by the economic crisis from COVID, and also by the security threats, this is their opportunity to say, look, we can all be here In symbol in a symbolic manner,
1: right? And usually the leadership from, you know, both parties are there on inauguration day. Are there going to be people from the Republican side of things who attend?
4: There will be Republicans in attendance. We know that there are going to be Republican lawmakers who go to church tomorrow morning with Joe Biden, including Senate Majority Leader right now, outgoing Mitch McConnell. This is that opportunity that Joe Biden has been saying he'll take advantage of, of reaching across the aisle. No members of the Trump family are going to be in attendance. They will already be in Mar-a-Lago. This poses logistical challenges because it means President Trump will have the nuclear codes with him in Florida at the same time that the nuclear football is supposed to be handed off to Joe Biden at 12.01 p.m. So these are logistical challenges that really have not been seen in modern history.
1: Okay, that's weird. That means that there's going to be a couple of hours where they're kind of in the air and neither person has them.
4: Yeah, so look, President Trump will have those codes to launch a nuclear strike uh, if he needed to until 11.59.59 tomorrow morning, and then that nuclear football has to be handed over, deactivated from Trump, reactivated for Joe Biden. So again, this is a challenge. There's, There's anything can happen in those two hours because Donald Trump will still be the president. He simply won't be in Washington or taking part in any kind of leadership role. Do we know what the agenda is going to be tomorrow? uh we know that it's supposed to start in and around the 11 o'clock hour uh, expected to wrap up however long joe biden wants his speech to go uh you know he's not a uh, you know a long-winded speaker oftentimes it's you know 25 30 minutes when he does it it's going to be uh, a remarkable speech for him to give to an empty field of people with people sitting watching at home uh beyond that the the usual nighttime events like the balls and the dances they are all going to be uh kind of online and virtual so when this is over tomorrow in person it's over
1: Right. Okay. So, and if, there's a huge lineup too of uh, people who are performing
4: tomorrow, isn't there? Like, that's yeah. something that we haven't seen in a while in Washington, D.C. No, we haven't seen it all. And some of it is still going to be virtual uh, when it comes to the, the program. Think back to the DNC when everything was kind of online and done in different parts of the country uh, and then brought together as one program. That's kind of what we're expecting tomorrow, but still some big names like Jennifer Lopez and uh, Lady Gaga trying to kind of, you know, reach out and 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 uh, and kind of, you know, bring something for each of the Democrats uh, who might not have really been following Joe Biden from the beginning, but also just trying to say, look, we can have a little bit of fun in a time of crisis.
1: All right. It's going to be interesting. Reggie, thank Thank you.
4: Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, not great timing for the Conservative Party of Canada. Just days after saying there is no place for the far right in their party comes out that a prominent white nationalist actually donated money to a controversial conservative MP named Derek Sloan. Now, it happened under a different name, a pseudonym. So it is unlikely that Derek Sloan actually knew who was behind the donation. But unfortunately, it's part of that broader narrative about the party that leader Aaron O'Toole has been trying to put behind him. Now, we did reach out and ask to speak to the leader, Aaron O'Toole, about this and other things. But uh, they well weren't uh, able to do that for us today. So we thought, let's talk about the situation though that the conservatives find themselves in. Joining us now is Tim Powers, the vice chair of Summa Strategies and managing director of Abacus Data, a longtime conservative strategist. Hi, Tim. Thanks for being with us.
5: It's Simi, you're getting the most Canadian interview possible this morning. Given we have homeschooling here in Ontario, I'm on a skating rink with my son, talking <laughs> to you as we're doing this. So the blade sounds are not conservatives sharpening their knives. They're just skates.
1: Okay, well, that's good to know because you know what? Some people might think that's what's going on. What the heck went wrong for Aaron O'Toole this week? Um,
5: well, Derek Sloan has gone wrong for the Conservative Party, perhaps since he's become a member of Parliament uh, uh, in uh, 2019. I think O'Toole oh, did the right thing when he came out with his statement on Sunday. I think it was important to do that. But uh, this mess with Sloan, and I think it's fair to call it that, is not helpful at the moment. Uh, Sloan probably should be kicked out of the Conservative Party, but if O'Toole does kick him out based on this bit uh, alone, the donor that he did claims he didn't know about, that the party apparently did know about, that's a very, very high bar. And you know, I know, the listeners know from past leadership races, sometimes it's a while before you figure out who yeah. donated to the party to vote for you.
1: I guess the other thing here is this does demonstrate that once again, the uh, like a conservative party leader in the conservative party is allowing kind of outside forces define who they are and what they're about before Aaron O'Toole has had a chance to fully do that.
5: Well, in fairness to Mr. O'Toole in these circumstances, they're not normal political circumstances. The pandemic has hijacked the ability uh, as it should rightly for anybody outside of the prime minister who's dealing with public health issues to get in the media, to talk about anything else. So uh, Mr. O'Toole was able to introduce himself briefly in August, but that was taken away from him. So he's got harder work to do, and when this is making the news, that's probably not a helpful thing. So many people are going to watch over the next number of hours to see how he deals with this Derek Sloan problem, because it is a problem.
1: Yeah, so Derek Sloan has vowed to fight it if the party does try to kick him out and then not let him run again, which Aaron O'Toole said he would like to do. What do you think the leader should do?
5: Uh, Look, I think there's a bit of a pattern with Mr. Sloan um, of courting views and opinions that are not really the views and opinions of the vast majority of people in the Conservative Party. You'll recall he was the front for a petition of anti-vaxxers a little while Mm. ago. He had some other things that have come to the fore. I think they need to build a bigger case around all of this. There'll be some pushback, but I think if O'Toole wants to be prime minister, he has to demonstrate to Canadians that the Conservative Party can withstand these attacks and isn't the party of... um, nationalists and radicalists and others that the liberals always argue that they are. And certainly Arnold Toole is not that kind of individual.
1: Right. Um, now they're running out of time here though, aren't they, Tim? Because all the word is that we're going to be having an election this year.
5: Well, Simi, uh, I, yeah, you guys are in hard shape in BC. It's pretty tough here in Ontario and Quebec at the moment. Yes, I think there'll still probably be an election, but they will have a bit more time. I think the prime minister had hoped that he could go in April or May. I don't know if that will still be possible, given the, um, the state of the pandemic here and the high volume of cases. But if he can't go there, I suspect he will try for June or September. So, Tool may have a couple of extra months, but not a hell of a lot of extra time.
1: Right. I guess he has to figure out what he's going to say here, too, right? Because there was some criticism about some conservative MPs, you know, being photographed in a, in a mega hat mega and stuff hat, yeah. like that. So, like, what do, you, what do you do about that kind of stuff?
5: Well, you lead with who you are. Look, I thought his statement was good on Sunday. Um, it, we're in the midst of, well, what I said to another one of your peers, a gathering storm. And that gathering storm is everything that's happening in the U.S. this week mm-hmm. and the redefinition of the Conservative Party. O'Toole just has to be consistent in his messages around all of these things and stay true to who he is. And he is a moderate fellow. He is different than Andrew Shearer. His mouth is not filled with marbles when he's trying to explain pro-choice views or other perspectives he has. So
1: harsh, so harsh to (laughs) him. It's
5: the morning, Simmy, and my son now needs to go to the bathroom. All of BC can hear that, and we're running around here. (laughs) Well, the like conservative party, the crisis never ends.
1: That's so true. Well, okay, we're going to let you take your son to the bathroom then because well, I know what's important. I'm a mom. I know what's important. You go do that. We'll catch up to you another time, okay? All right. Thank take you, care to Su- That's Tim Powers. He's the vice chair of Suma Strategies and obviously a great dad too. He's the managing director of uh, because Data and a longtime Conservative Party strategist as well, talking about the trouble that the Conservative Party has found itself in. And once again, they have this contentious MP who brings them the kinds of headlines and discussion and chatter that they just are trying to get away from. Aaron O'Toole has said he would like to remove Derek Sloan from the party, that they've started that process, and they're going to ban him from running again as a candidate under their banner. Derek Sloan, on the other hand, is vowing to fight back on that. So unfortunately for the Conservatives, more headlines on this topic. And again, we have requested to have a chat with Aaron O'Toole about this. We'll see what happens.
0: This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about the
1: economic outlook for local businesses this year, as in here in British Columbia. They have been surveyed to ask them how they're feeling. And it sounds like six in 10 businesses are still experiencing reduced sales volumes. Half of the business owners that were surveyed say they expect that to continue for the next few months. Now, this is a survey that was done by the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade and the President and CEO, Bridget Anderson, joins us now to talk more about it. Good morning, Bridget. Good morning, Simi. Was there anything that surprised you in this survey? Like, here we are a year into this, but what surprised you?
6: Well, I think a lot of people and businesses uh, were feeling that 2021 was going to be a bright spot and that things were going to improve uh, quite quickly. But, you know, this survey is showing that things are still Pretty bleak, and businesses are on edge and preparing for some tough months ahead. So, there is the light at the end of the tunnel. Our jurisdiction is doing better, our province is doing better than other provinces, and case numbers are going down. We saw that yesterday, but that light at the end of the tunnel is quite a far ways off.
1: Yeah, it certainly seemed to me from reading the results that even though BC like economically and COVID wise is doing better than a lot of other provinces, it's not like economic optimism is hugely higher here.
6: No, and when you you mentioned, you know, we saw over 60% reporting a decrease in sales volume and seeing other significant impacts continuing, like increased operating costs or deferred or cancelled projects, reducing staff hours. And when businesses are looking ahead to what 2021 might look like, over a third are feeling pessimistic about both the provincial and the federal economy. Over half expect revenues, their revenues to be lower for the next three to six months. And over 40% are planning to cut investments in the next year. So that's reducing their workforce or training uh, budgets as well as capital projects. So really bracing for what could be some tough months.
1: Right. But um, there were some positive things here as well, right? Especially when it came to the, the digital presence of a lot of these companies.
6: And thank you for saying that because, yes. <laughs> yes, you know, we need to, we do need to focus on the positive. And uh, we did see that 40% of respondents have increased their digital presence since the pandemic began in the spring. But over 60% plan to do more of that in the coming months. So this is really reflective of the shift that we're seeing uh, in business. A lot more services and products being offered online, e-commerce becoming much more prevalent. Uh, we have seen over 20% of businesses introduce new products or services. So I think as we move further into 2021, we'll see that shift continue, that digital transformation. And there is a positive of that, because that has really helped a lot of businesses get through this tough spot.
1: Now, what about getting people back to work, like in the workplace? I think 20 to 30% of employees are still working from home. Do companies expect that to change?
6: This was really interesting because I, I, there is, uh, I think, uh, a lot of discussion and not a lot of alignment about what the future of work is going to look like. It's just too early and the data isn't there. But what we're hearing from businesses is saying that 70% um, do not anticipate the majority of their employees being back in the office until the summer uh, or even later than that. And they, we also saw similar numbers, about uh, 70% saying the lasting impacts will be that reliance on, on on that digital piece, or on on some sort of virtual uh, kind of work from home method, we're seeing. saying they're going to implement or expand their work-from-home policies. And one thing that I thought was also interesting, that one in four were saying that they were going to either incentivize or request or require their employees to get the vaccine before coming back to work. So what these results say around uh, the workplace is that it really is too early to say what the impact is going to be on commercial real estate, for example, because we do have, you know, about uh, 30% saying that they're thinking about reducing their their office space. But I've been reading a lot of um, stories as well and a lot of data that's saying, you know, in fact, offices might need more office space to make sure that there's social distancing in place. So I do think that work from home is here to stay in whatever way that means, whether it's a hybrid model um, or or what that looks like. I know a lot of businesses are really grappling with that and, and what that's going to look like uh, going forward for this year.
1: Yeah, I wonder what the incentivize employees to get the vaccination looks like uh, as well. I I guess that's something that they're going to have to figure out.
6: That one is a tricky one. I mean, obviously, there is employment laws that need to be uh, put in place and or that are in place and that need to be uh, adhered to. So, uh, and incentivize. You know, there's there's obviously opportunities to do that. I think that a lot of employers would feel safer if their employees are vaccinated. But that vaccination, and Dr. Bonnie Henry has said this, that is very much a personal choice, and that needs to be respected. One other thing I did want to mention about the survey that I thought was interesting, Simi, is, is the reliance on the government programs like the Hughes program, the wage subsidy or the rent subsidy, that you know, businesses have seen that to be very valuable. But when those programs end, and they will at some point, that we're seeing about a quarter of businesses will have to take some action to mitigate that. So maybe it's laying off employees or reducing hours, and only half saying that they're going to return to business as usual. So that really speaks to the reliance on the, the government programs and how helpful yeah. they have been for many businesses.
1: Right. And on the other hand, though, when you look at the Provincial government, it doesn't sound like businesses were that happy with the support they received.
6: No, uh, there has been some criticism of the BC government and the kind of supports that have been offered and certainly some ideas have come forward about what would be helpful uh, for the provincial government. Uh, The economic tax for the premier's uh, economic recovery task force meets again this week and I'm a member of that and I will be speaking about these results uh, of the survey to the government and some of the things that came forward ideas would be reducing the school tax for commercial properties for example but other things to help uh, reduce the cost of doing business and that certainly dates back to the pre-pandemic and does continue to to rise up as something that businesses uh, would ask the government to do to get them through this difficult time.
1: And also once again child care this is something you know five ten years ago Bridget businesses would not have (laughs) talked a lot about child care but now it's a very hot topic.
6: It is, Simmy. you and I are both parents, and you and I are both probably, I would say, fortunate through this pandemic that we haven't had little ones at home to, yeah. to worry about the schooling, but I do have one in his last year of high school, and it has been a challenge, and so I certainly can uh, understand the, the concerns by parents about how difficult it must be to balance work and schooling and mental health and wellness and the social aspects of, of children, so child care does need to be a, a serious consideration for any government, especially as we're seeing work from home going to continue.
1: It certainly does. All right, Bridget, thank you. Thanks so much, Sydney. Bridget Anderson, President and CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade, also part of that Premier's Economic Recovery Task Force. It is interesting that 49% of the businesses that were surveyed said the province is not providing enough support for their business to succeed through the pandemic. Uh, Yes was about 16%. Unsure was about 35%. So the provincial government there could according to these businesses, do more to help them. As for the child care issue, one third of businesses reported challenges in finding available child care spaces, either during or even before the pandemic. Child care remains a hot topic for business these days and for everybody, right?
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Slower vaccine delivery, people wanting to visit their loved ones in long-term care homes, rapid test for staff who work in those long-term care homes. There's so many questions about what is going on in that industry right now. So joining us now to talk about all of that and when, most importantly, those visiting restrictions might be relaxed a little bit, is Terry Lake, the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me on. Well, this is really important for us to talk about because I know people have questions. How is the uh, vaccination of people in long-term care homes going?
7: Well, generally, I think it's going very well. Uh, This is an enormous undertaking and, uh, you know, with very uh, short timelines to get organized, uh, a a vaccine that is difficult to handle. So, you know, we've got to say congratulations uh, to the provincial government for their efforts. Uh, we had some hiccups and there will be more. But, you know, we're almost at the end of the first round of vaccinations for people living in long-term care and assisted living and those who care for them. So that's a tremendous accomplishment.
1: So are there still people waiting, would you say, like residents of long-term care homes still waiting for their shot?
7: I believe there are uh, probably about 10% of residents around the province. And I think as you get out into the you know the more remote areas, uh, there are um, some that still have not been vaccinated. The good thing is that the virus is not as prevalent, um, but of course, they're further away from the acute care they need if, if they were to become ill. So it's very important that we get those done. But um, I think by the end of this week, it will be close to 100% coverage on the first vaccination.
1: All right, and how concerned are you then about the lack of supply it sounds like we're gonna be getting in the Pfizer vaccine?
7: Well, it's always concerning, um, you know, this this will, you know, eventually work itself out, but it means that uh, those that were due to receive their first vaccination in the second round uh, of priority will probably have to wait a week or two while the first round uh, recipients get their second vaccine because they're coming up to 35 days, I believe, uh, right about now. So it's a it's a tough decision for the province to make, but I think it's the right one. You want to make sure that People get complete coverage, and and um, you know it's a bit of a, uh, I, I guess a gamble where where you try to delay it that like Quebec has to cover as many people versus here having have some delay in the second vaccine, but not enough to jeopardize the response that the recipient receives.
1: So given that Terry, that we've got more people getting vaccinated, and it's happening that we've seemed to have reduced our number of cases because of our you know cutting back on contacts. What does that mean for being able to loosen up restrictions and getting people to start visiting their loved ones again?
7: Well, Simi, we're coming up to the spring equinox, uh, you know, the third week of March. And wouldn't it be great if that signaled uh, reunification of families uh, that have loved ones in long-term care? And so, you know, like, I can't think of a more optimistic uh, thought than than that, and so we're eagerly looking forward to that. We're encouraged by Dr. Henry's uh, discussion about that yesterday. You know, I think by then all residents, workers, and essential visitors will have received their vaccines. Uh, that still will leave some that are not vaccinated. Some people are choosing not to be vaccinated. And of course, uh, we have designated visitors that are very important for uh, residents of long-term care and assisted living. So we still feel, as we have always felt, that there's a role for rapid testing uh, to ensure that we don't cause infection because this vaccine isn't 100% effective. And there's still a danger that long-term care could be affected by the virus even after the vaccine.
1: So where are we at with that plan then? I know that many people have asked public health officials about that rapid testing for long-term care homes. What have you heard?
7: Well, there's still a reluctance. You know, we've been uh, encouraged by the pilot program in Vancouver Coastal. We've been trying to encourage that pilot to be spread out in other health authorities. Quite frankly, we're getting um, lots of delays in, in requested meetings with health authorities to talk about this. Uh, meetings are made and then they're cancelled. It, it it seems like there's been um, basically direction from the top that, you know, don't go there. We're We're really not interested in expanding this wider than we're doing now and I'm I'm really baffled by that because you know you're only looking at about 15%, perhaps, of all long-term care employees that uh, that would have to be rapid testing. You don't need to do it every day. You could do it twice or three times a week. Right. And with the nasal swab approved, uh, the technique is is simple to do and, and really doesn't require that, that much in terms of resources.
1: So you think we need all three of these things, right? We need to reduce the contacts, get the vaccinations, and have rapid testing.
7: I mean, we're talking about the most vulnerable setting uh possible in terms of this uh, virus and you know we've always talked about building this ring of protection around our seniors and yet we've kept visitors away that have never been a real threat of introducing the virus and we've failed uh to screen staff properly and we've we've wound up with you know hundreds of people dead in long-term care so you know i don't think we've accomplished what we set out to do and i think we could have done better
1: well terry thanks so much for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. Terry Lake, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association, showing that we still have a ways to go if we really do want to put that ring of protection around our seniors in long-term care homes, make sure they stay protected and safe with a combination of rapid testing, people getting vaccinated as well, just keeping all of that and us reducing our social contacts too. So more to come on that for sure. If you want to weigh in, Simmy at cknw.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: The Cullen Commission is looking into money laundering in BC and testimony has been continuing this week, including from the RCMP. And one of the things heard in that testimony has been the RCMP's assertion that money laundering is happening apparently in a big way through so-called white glove ATM machines. And that was news to the ATM Industry Association. In fact, it was a huge surprise to the head of the association, Chris Chandler, who joins us now. Chris, thank you for being here.
8: Uh, It's my pleasure.
1: Now, we heard about this money laundering through ATM machines at the Cullen Inquiry. What did you think when you heard that?
8: Well, it's been a topic that's been around, Simi, since 2008, uh, at that time, the industry has been, uh, had been working for uh, more than 10 years with, to my knowledge, no one charged or uh, accused of money laundering in ATMs. Um, but a task force called the Financial Action Task Force came to Canada, reviewed our entire financial system as they do regularly. And uh, one small portion of the report said there was no uh, documented regulation saying you shouldn't money launder in a white label ATM Um, that uh, instigated a task force, which I sat on with the finance department, law enforcement, uh, FinTrack and others, um, where we developed the Interac uh, anti-money laundering regulations, which have been in force since that time. It's important that at 2008, there was no claims that there was money laundering going on. The issue was there was no regulation. And that somehow seems to have morphed into uh, a perception uh, with uh, law enforcement, uh, some law enforcement, and with by by them to the public that that it's a big problem, and uh, and the the facts just don't bear that out.
1: Right, and so yet that's what they came to the Cullen Commission and said the other day. And when you heard that, though, what did you think?
8: Yeah. So, but the shocking part of the session with the Cullen Commission is that. It was the first time I've been uh, given access to the 2008 RCMP uh, intelligence report on money laundering and white label ATMs and I've uh, I've heard of this report for many years I've asked to see it and no one's been willing to share it um, that report uh, does uh, two things one is it sets out um, significant evidence in cases uh, that organized crime exists in Canada which we which we all know and unfortunately uh, have to live with. Um, Secondly, it uh, articulates and and provides evidence that uh, organized crime has infiltrated or influenced um, business owners. And these could be bars or restaurants or convenience stores and and folks that are uh, otherwise potentially clean business folks. And they're either, you know, by cooperation or by extortion or by coercion are working with organized crime. So those two things the report sets out and, uh, and we have no uh, objection with those two things. But for me, the facts stop there. And they then make uh, giant leaps to, um, to assume that if that business has an ATM, then you know, essentially every dollar going through that ATM is proceeds of crime, which is, in my view, nonsense. Um, that doesn't and, even make sense. Uh,
1: like that, I don't even understand how that would be possible. Like You assume that with any ATM, there is a check and balance situation.
8: And absolutely, and so the ATMs are in fact monitored um, and provide higher levels of documentation uh, than uh, than a typical bank account would right so we start with the ATM can only deposit to a single bank account um, that bank account had to meet its own standards to be opened, and then we have strict interact rules that require source of funds declarations for each and every ATM um, when you're going to a bank, you only need to Provide such a declaration if you deposit more than $10,000 in cash at one time. Um, And we also have, um, if an ATM is depositing more than $5,000, half the the amount you'd be uh, asked to do something at the bank with, we actually get a criminal background check on that owner to make sure that they do not have any financial crimes in their background. So there's already a higher standard for uh, the ATMs than there is um, for other... You know, just for a basic bank account. Right. And so if you imagine, um, you know, you can get money into the bank. If, if a merchant puts their money in the ATM, it can, it can certainly be deposited in the bank. But you can also use the bank night deposit. You can use a bank ATM with their deposit capability, or you can go to the teller. And, uh, and each of those three paths. Has less scrutiny and less documentation than than the ATM does,
1: right? And so you obviously pushed back hard, right, when you heard that testimony from the RCMP. What was their reaction, though? Like, are they not, they've come under a lot of criticism for not doing enough? but What was their reaction when you pointed out to them, "Listen, your numbers are flawed"?
8: Well, you know, it wasn't a, a discussion back and forth, so I don't have their reaction. But you know, they by their numbers, which which I would call whiteboard numbers, um, you know, they're in the 12 years since their report came out, they claim up to a billion dollars a year, $12 billion. Um, during that time, uh, the facts are there has been one uh, criminal charged uh, with uh, with money laundering of approximately, I believe, $100,000 in six ATMs, uh, which is uh, great because they were caught and prosecuted. Um, and uh, so one of two things is happening. Either those numbers are just not true, which is my contention, or... Um, there has to be some reason the police are unable or unwilling to to, to track these folks down, well, yeah. right? If it if it's really that big of a number, um, and and the good news I think is it's really just not that big of a number. There isn't uh, a systemic problem, in my view, of of the ATMs being used, and and so we walk them through the uh, other ways um, that that. Uh, you can get money into the bank. And, you know, some of the things that were very uh, challenging in, in the presentation from, from law enforcement were things like an allegation that, you know, the ATMs are much more anonymous, that they don't ultimately know who puts the money in the ATM, even though we have much documentation over who's supposed to. But frankly, if you go to a bank night deposit or you go to a bank ATM with a card and pin, you have no idea who that person is. So, so if anonymity is an issue, it ought to be an issue on all three of those um, it? fronts. It's only at the teller with ID that they can be sure who you are, right? Was it
1: frustrating, yeah? Was it frustrating, though, for you to hear that, listen, this is an industry that you work in, that you represent, and you think, listen, we can do better with these numbers. I, I, you don't know, like, why didn't they ask you about this first?
8: Yeah, that's the real challenge. And in fact, they did. We had RCMP, senior RCMP representatives on the task force in 2008 that was run by the finance department. We had several uh, sessions just with those RCMP officers, uh, educating them on the industry. And in fact, they came to the conclusion that this was not uh, a likely spot for organized crime. They articulated that to the committee and that that, um, was the last uh, catalyst for drafting the the AML regulations. So unbeknownst to, to those of us on the committee, at the same time that that was happening, the RCMP was publishing this this report that we're now only now able to see 12 years later, uh, essentially saying the opposite, right, uh, with, with innuendo and, and uh, assumptions that appear to have no facts backing them up.
1: That is crazy stuff. Chris, thank you for your time on that today.
8: Oh, you're welcome. And, and just a final note, I mean, this industry, the ATM industry, it's really uh, tens of thousands of merchants that are uh, operating these ATMs for the benefit of Canadians, and, and roughly 80 percent of all access points for Canadians to get their cash an essential service comes through ATM locations. So it's pretty important that we um, continue to uh, to provide this service to Canadians. And we'd really appreciate if the innuendo and inference could stop uh, and that the uh, law enforcement could um, uh, stop perpetrating these uh, these assumptions and innuendo.
1: All right, Chris, thank you. That is Chris Chandler, president of the ATM Industry Association. They are not happy, as you heard, with some of the RCMP testimony at the Cullen Commission into money laundering this past week, alleging that, you know, a billion dollars a year was being money laundered through ATMs. And they said that is just not true. And there is no proof of that. Uh, So interesting goings on at the commission. We'll